You're listening to Legally Bliss Conversations. This podcast reclaims and rewrites the stories female attorneys have been told about how we should practice law, grow our businesses, treat our clients, treat ourselves, and craft our identities as female attorneys. We'll hear inspiring stories from current and former female attorneys, the ones who question the stories they've been told, the ones who aren't afraid to live boldly and step into their own power. We'll learn from women who define success on their terms. Through lighthearted and curious conversation, we'll unpack the challenges these inspiring female attorneys have already navigated. So join me on this journey. You'll be empowered and ready to rewrite a completely new story about what is possible for you. I'd like to welcome everyone to Legally Bliss Conversations. I am thrilled to welcome today, Elisa Schatzman. Elisa is the president and co-founder of the Legal Accountability Project, a nonprofit aimed at ensuring that as many law clerks as possible have positive clerkship experiences while extending support and resources to those who do not. Elisa earned her BA from Williams College and her JD from Washington University School of Law. During law school, Elisa interned with four different components of the U.S. Department of Justice. After law school, Elisa clerked in D.C. Superior Court during the 2019-2020 term. In March 2022, Elisa submitted a statement for the record for a House Judiciary Subcommittee hearing about workplace protections for judiciary employees, detailing her personal experience of gender discrimination, harassment, and retaliation retaliation by a former D.C. judge. Alitza regularly writes and speaks about judicial accountability, and she has been published in numerous forums, including the UCLA Journal of Gender and Law, the NYU Journal of Legislation and Public Policy, Above the Law, Law 360, Slate, Ms. Magazine, and Balls and Strikes. Welcome, Alitza. I am so happy that you're here to um, talk with me about your story. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. So let's, let's go back just a few years. Why did you go to law school? So I went to law school because I wanted to be a reproductive rights litigator. Um, during undergrad at Williams college, I interned at Planned Parenthood in the national women's law center. And I'd always had like a strong sense of moral outrage, particularly on injustices affecting women. And I was just really moved by the personal stories I heard So I went to law school thinking I wanted to do that, but pretty early on, I got the trial attorney bug, knew that I wanted to be in court every day. And that's when I decided to intern at the justice department, did a couple more internships after that, and really just decided that I wanted to be a homicide prosecutor in the DC U.S. attorney's office. Wow. So after you graduated from law school, what was your next move? After law school, I clerked in DC Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term. And I selected the clerkship. D.C. Superior Court is D.C.'s local trial court, even though our judges are Senate confirmed, which makes them unique within the judicial space. But I knew that D.C. AUSA has appeared before D.C. Superior Court judges, and I thought I'd get a really good crash course in trial lawyering and judicial decision making. And I, like a lot of young attorneys, kind of was told in law school that this would create a lifelong mentor-mentee relationship between myself and the judge, and that he would nurture me throughout my career. And help me advance. And that did not happen. Unfortunately, everything would be like daisies and, and unicorns. Right. But that's yeah. not really what happens. 
Nope. And that is still like the myth that some of these law schools and clerkship directors are purveying to this day that lots of ink is spilled every clerkship application cycle about the best of circumstances. And really what I'm trying to make people aware of is the worst of circumstances, which my story kind of illustrates. Let's, let's talk about it. If if you're up for it. Um, You started your clerkship in August of 2019, right? So you probably had just taken the bar. The bar and the MPRE back to back. It was a tough couple months. Yes. Sure. And so you started the program. Um, What, let's set the stage. What, what happened? So I started my clerkship in August by early September. So like just weeks into the clerkship, the judge for whom I clerked began to harass me and discriminate against me based on my gender. He would kick me out of the courtroom on days when I was supposed to be in court with him, telling me I made him uncomfortable and he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk. And it just got worse from there very rapidly. He told me I was bossy and aggressive and nasty and a disappointment. In October, I found out that I'd passed the DC bar exam. So big day in my life. Kind of a big day, right? <laughs> yeah. October 26th, he called me into his chambers, got in my face and said, you're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. Ouch. It was just yeah. devastating. I mean, this sure. was my first job out of law school. I was a couple months into my legal career. And this judge just seemed to be singling me out for mistreatment. He seemed to have enormous power over my life. And I just remember crying in the courthouse bathroom, crying myself to sleep at night. I mean, I wished that I could be assigned to a different judge, but my workplace didn't have an employee dispute resolution or EDR plan in place that might've enabled me to be reassigned. And I confided in a couple female law clerks and a couple mentors and people advised me to stick it out. And I knew that I needed a year of work experience to be eligible to apply for a job at the DC US attorney's office. So you tried to stick it out. Let me ask you this before we move on. Um, Were you keeping a record of what was going on at that time? Like, were you kind of taking notes? Like, did you have like your private kind of notebook or journal or place that you were keeping a record of everything that was going on? And would you recommend something like that for someone who could be, could be currently experiencing something? That's a good question. Um, I was not taking notes. No, but I mean, I did confide in people um, and kept kind of track of who I confided in, but no. And what I would recommend is that people do keep notes, keep track, forward yourself emails. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So this behavior um, went on and apparently you are the bossy clerk who (laughs) reminds this judge of his his wife. So what, what happened next? COVID? <laughs> yeah, COVID. Yeah. So I, when I, I mean, I talked to a mentor about this, like in that period and he was like, well, maybe you'll get to finish your clerkship like remotely and he will just leave you alone. And well, I mean, he ended up ignoring me for six weeks. So calls, texts, emails went unanswered. It was enormously difficult to do my job without a supervisor to like answer questions or provide guidance. And then finally he calls me up in late April of 2020 he says he's ending my clerkship early because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him, but he didn't want to get into it. And then he hung up on me. No email, no like written type of correspondence in that situation. It was, it was a phone call. Uh, it was a phone call. We had a little bit of email correspondence, which I did save and passed along to the commission that ultimately invested my compl- investigated my complaint and to my attorneys and various other people. So there was a little, but 
as I look back, I wish that there was not more written correspondence. And I definitely feel like that was, I feel that it was likely intentional on his part to make it not written, but, um, you know, that's not a legal claim. That's just my personal feeling. That's your about personal it. feeling. Okay, Reflecting so, back. Yeah. Yeah. The hindsight's like 2020, 20, right? You look back and like, oh, like you wishing. But yeah. So, you wish. I mean, the issue, but the issue with this is that a lot of clerkships, there's a lot of informal correspondence like that between judges and clerks. And I think that's one of the many reasons it makes it enormously difficult. Like it would have been unusual for him to write out a long letter explaining why he was ending my clerkship early. I think that's how law clerks are really mistreated by these judges. Not only do they have enormous power, but everything is so informal, especially in the early days of COVID when everything was such a mess. I think they're, that's how a lot of judges get away with misconduct. It's like a very informal and unregulated workplace. Yes. And we're going to get into that, all that misconduct. Yes. <laughs> we will. I've learned some things. So yeah. let me ask you, um, in April, 2020, he's like, okay, I'm, I'm ending this. What yep. happened next for you? What was your next move? I'm sure you were a little devastated at that point. Uh, yeah, I was quite devastated. I remember yeah. crying in my room. Sure. I mean, I ultimately had to tell my parents, which was a tough conversation. I was staying with them and working remotely, uh, confided in a couple mentors, um, confided in my law school. And at that point I found out this judge had a history of misconduct and that law school officials were aware of it at the time I accepted my clerkship. And before that, and I don't share that to point the finger at my law school, cause I'm trying to work with them productively now, but it is important because um, my story is not unique in that respect. I, as I speak with a lot of law schools, I know that they are concealing <laughs> stories about misconduct, but I confided in my law school, our clerkships director advised me to get another clerkship and wanted me later to speak with other students about clerking for this judge, like to recommend him, which I thought was pretty outrageous. Um, connected with a DC judge who was very helpful and directed me to the DC commission on judicial disabilities and tenure, uh, which is where I ultimately filed my complaint. I also during this period reached out to HR for the DC courts, had several conversations with them where they said there was nothing they could do because HR doesn't regulate judges, judges and law clerks have a unique relationship. And then lovely, they asked me, didn't I know that I was an at will employee? No, I ultimately got a job at the DC US attorney's office. You were at the DS DC's attorney's office. Okay. So yeah, yeah. what happened there? What happened in that situation? Because yeah. this this leads up to more. Yes, it does. It does. Yeah. Um, we're just building up to the best. We part. are building up to <laughs> yeah. the goodness that you are offering to the world because yeah. of what, what you've gone through. But I think it's important right. to sort of tell this this background about what you went through. Oh, definitely. Impacted you. Definitely. Yeah. So I had, I'd written up a complaint detailing what I experienced during my clerkship, but I wanted to wait to file it until I had a new job because I already kind of suspected that this was the kind of person this judge would retaliate against me. So it took me about a year to get back on my feet. I ultimately secured my dream job in the DC US attorney's office. And I moved back to DC in July of 2021, was two weeks into training. So I'd already started working there. Um, when I received some pretty devastating news, very devastating news, um, I was told the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance, and that my job offer was being revoked. And then a couple of days later, a different offered interview for a different position with the USAO was also revoked based on the judge's same negative reference. 
I was two years into my legal career and this judge just seemed to have unchecked power over my life and career and reputation. So that's when I filed my judicial complaint after adding some sections about the reference, which I hadn't yet seen, but believed was gender-based. Hired attorneys in the summer and fall of 2021, participated in the investigation into the now former judge. Um, we were partway through the investigation when I found out separately, not from the commission, but separately, that the judge was on administrative leave pending an investigation into other misconduct. At the time, he filed the negative reference about me. The USAO was not alerted to the circumstances surrounding the reference. Um, I eventually saw the reference through private settlement negotiations between my attorneys and his, which was outrageous and misleading, but by then the damage had been done. Um, in January of 2022, pursuant to the terms of our settlement, the judge, then former judge, issued a clarifying statement to the USAO addressing some but not all of his outrageous claims about me, but by then the damage had been done. And I was pretty much blackballed from what I thought was my dream job. Like all of this that you've gone through is the impetus for your legal accountability project. Yes. You saw that there was so much power disparity in, in like with your experience with this judge and then your next position. And then obviously like trying to wrangle some type of settlement, I'm sure. So let's talk a little bit about that power disparity that you're Absolutely. seeing. Yeah, this is enormously important. Yeah. When I speak to people who haven't clerked, when I speak to non-attorneys, it's really important to highlight this. Yeah. So a clerkship is when a young attorney, fresh out of law school, maybe a couple of years work experience, takes a pay cut to spend a year or two learning from working for a judge. There is an enormous power disparity between these young attorneys and judges, many of whom are Senate confirmed, many of whom have life tenure, they are exempt from Title VII, there are no enforced workplace protections, they are never disciplined, they are never removed from the bench. And these judges just have enormous power and influence over their clerks and former clerks' lives. Mm -hmm. Law clerks work long hours behind locked doors in stressful circumstances between two and four clerks, maybe a judicial assistant and this powerful judge work together in close quarters and there is no oversight by a chief judge or anybody else over these judges' day-to-day -day dealings with their clerks, mm -hmm. which makes it just enormously difficult for law clerks to speak up in the face of workplace mistreatment. And addition, in addition to the really like egregious types of retaliation, the things I highlight in my own story, there's also the more insidious ways that judges can undermine their former clerks, mm -hmm. gossip, circulating yeah. false, false rumors around the courthouse, talking to legal employers informally. There are so many ways that a malicious judge out to undermine a former clerk can do that and really get them blackballed from their dream jobs, get them blackballed from the legal profession entirely. So, yeah. So one thing I, I think is really interesting here that you talk about is where you, you are actually physically kind of isolated like you might talk yes. about the, this isolation and it's not a metaphor right like yeah. you can really be physically isolated so can you tell me a little bit about your experience with that and, and what that was like 
Yes. I remember that very vividly. So it was myself, a male co-clerk who was conveniently out of chambers whenever the judge was mistreating me. And this judge, we had no other clerks, no judicial assistant. It was just the three of us. And typically what would happen is the judge would have me stay late until my co-clerk had left so he could yell at me (laughs) when there was nobody around to witness it. I remember a couple instances going upstairs to another uh, judge's chambers to confide in the clerks. We were about to move calendars, which means we take on a new judicial assignment. We were going from criminal to family court and we were switching folders. And I just remember collapsing in this pile of boxes and just starting to cry. It is enormously like, imagine if it is just you and a Senate confirmed judge, there's, there's nowhere to go. I mean, our chambers was totally isolated, worked behind locked doors and um, it's, very scary. I mean, it's physically very imposing. Physically very imposing. Yeah. And there's also this assumption of integrity. I think with judges, people yes. think that, oh, well, it's a judge and they're going to be on wonderful behavior, but that's not necessarily, that's not necessarily the truth. Yeah. There's this myth that judges can do no wrong. And we've been taught since law school that judges deserve absolute respect and total deference. Mm-hmm. And while, I mean, if you are an attorney or a litigant in the courtroom, you should absolutely you know, respect the judge. That's the extent of it. If somebody is mistreating you, the idea that you would just stay silent in the face of that because this person is a judge But yet that's what we're told. That's what attorneys tell us. There are lots of attorneys right now who heard my story, who know me and who still believe that the right professional decision would have been not to report, you know, tarnishes my reputation when I speak publicly, all kinds of ridiculousness, particularly from female attorneys, just lots of, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I want to talk a little bit about the title seven exemption that you mentioned a minute ago. Can you tell the audience what that is and kind of how it plays along with the recent Judiciary Accountability Act. I know that you've been very um, supportive of that and I'm curious what the status is as well. Yes. So the entire federal judiciary is exempt from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Mm -hmm. That means that law clerks and federal public defenders cannot sue their harassers and seek damages for harms done to their lives, careers, and future earning potential. It makes the judiciary distinct from the other two branches of government, Congress, and the executive branch. Their employees are protected by and employers subject to Title VII as of 1995, pursuant to the Congressional Accountability Act, the Executive and Presidential Office Administrative Act. Um, And Congress in 2018 extended protections to interns. So interns on the Hill have more protection than law clerks right now, which is troublesome. Yeah. So the judiciary has just notoriously refused to be regulated. In 1995, when these other two laws were proposed, they were just vociferously opposed to being regulated, making these nonsense claims about judicial independence, which are just a smokescreen for we believe we're above the law. And I really think that continuing to exempt the judiciary from Title VII sends a message to misbehaving judges you are above the laws you enforce. So the Judiciary Accountability Act, or JAA, that's HR 4827 and S2553, would extend Title VII to the federal judiciary. Uh, would also do some other important things, though. It would redefine judicial misconduct in the U.S. Code to include discrimination and retaliation. It would specify that judges who retire or resign to evade a misconduct investigation 
That investigation will continue after they step down. That's key. Yes. It would standardize these employee dispute resolution plans, which are notoriously unstandardized. I would create a confidential reporting system for law clerks who want to confide in somebody but aren't yet ready to file a formal complaint. Um, And it would impose some data collection requirements on the judiciary, requiring them to report the outcomes of judicial misconduct complaints, the lack of diversity in law clerk and federal public defender hiring, and it would require them to conduct a workplace culture assessment, which they've been just notoriously unwilling to do, which I believe is a red flag that they are covering up some misconduct. There's some stuff they don't want publicly shared. So we do a lot of important things. It's not perfect, but it's important legislation. I've been advocating for it since the House Judiciary hearing in March 2022, where I submitted written testimony. And I'm also advocating for an amendment to cover the D.C. courts and other Article One courts, which are currently not covered under the bill. So what is the status of that right now? Yeah, so the House hearing went well. It has about 26 co-sponsors in the House. We're hopeful there'll be a Senate hearing in the fall, but that's not confirmed yet. It has only about six co-sponsors in the Senate, but there are definitely more Democratic and Republican senators who were supportive of it than is reflected in the number of co-sponsors. And I mean, we'll see. It's an uphill battle. The judiciary is a weirdly powerful lobby considering how small they are, but um, you know, law clerks are a less powerful lobby, especially because they are quite fearful or actively silenced by members of the profession. So I'm trying to be a voice for them and we are hopeful. I mean, it is beyond time. And like, I know that Congress is busy, lots of stuff going on, but law clerks cannot wait another year for these urgently needed reforms. And that's why I think it's so important for me to share my story and put like personal face, personal story on abstract issues. Like what is judicial accountability? What is judicial misconduct? Well, I think my story illustrates a lot of that and why these protections are so urgently needed. Okay, so Elise is not the kind of person, you're not just going to sit back and wait for these things to happen. Definitely not. Uh, nope, I'm, a, I'm an aggressive, bossy woman. And you, know, I'm <laughs> you are <forward>. an aggressive, <laughs> bossy woman. So let's talk about your the Legal Accountability Project. Yes, here we are. So after the March 2022 hearing, I received a really positive response to my statement and my story. And I'm very grateful because I know previous law clerks who've spoken out, the response hasn't been so uniformly positive. Wow. So yeah, I began kind of tossing around some ideas for ways to further the advocacy work with my friend, law school classmate, and now co-founder, Matt Goodman. And eventually the Legal Accountability Project was born. We launched officially on June 1, 2022. And we basically seek to ensure that law clerks have a positive experience um, and then extend support and resources to the ones who don't. The Legal Accountability Project is the resource I wish I had when I was a law student applying for clerkships, Mm -hmm. a law clerk facing mistreatment and unsure where to go for help, and a former clerk engaged in the formal judicial complaint process. Okay, so you have two initiatives. Yes, we do. Two major initiatives in collaboration with law schools beginning this fall, and we are actively looking for our law school partners right now. So the first is a centralized clerkships reporting database. And it will really democratize information about judges. And I should probably back up and kind of explain the process by which people get clerkships. Yeah, yeah, that would be wonderful. So right now, there is no way for law clerks, law students, prospective clerks to watch out for judges with a history of misconduct. If you are looking to apply to clerkships right now, you're relying on what are referred to as whisper networks, which means 
reaching out to former clerks who may or may not be willing to give you the true information about their judge, especially if the judge harassed them, especially if they're still practicing in the jurisdiction where he or she presides. Mm-hmm. So historically, the information just does not get shared between the law clerks with the info and the students who need the info. And we also see, we, I also see as I'm speaking with law schools, these really problematic silo effects whereby a few law schools are harboring a lot of information about notoriously misbehaving judges. They may or may not warn students. Fed clerkships directors tell me they don't warn students. It's their policy not to, which I think is outrageous. Outrageous. And <laughs> even the ones that do warn their students, that does nothing for like the hundred other law schools worth of prospective clerks out there who are just unwittingly walking into a hostile work environment. And we're not saying to law schools like, turn over your proprietary information that helps students get clerkships. What we're saying is, if you have information about judges who are harassing their clerks, that information should be shared. And so we are trying to create a centralized mechanism by which every law student can watch out for misbehaving judges and know the good ones to apply to. Our database will have law clerk alumni from the participating institutions uh, creating an account with us and reporting anonymously on their judge and their clerkship. Good, bad, medium, we want to hear everything. We don't just elucidate data on judicial misconduct, though that's certainly important, but there's other stuff you wanna know before clerking. Has my judge provide feedback? Uh, Does it give me a lot of writing experience? Does it give me courtroom experience? Can I take vacation? All kinds of things that need to be shared. Sure. So law clerk alumni will be reporting into the database. And if your law school is participating and you are a law student considering a clerkship or a judicial internship or externship, you can read all the reports, not just the reports by your alumni, but also reports by all the other law clerk alumni. There are a few schools that maintain some sort of internal database of post-clerkship surveys, but these law schools understand they are not capturing the scope of the problem that law students are historically unwilling to report back to their law school on their negative clerkship experience. And right now we hope to supplement law school's existing resources. Five years from now, we hope every school will participate and will supplant all of their resources. And we will be the database for misbehaving judges, good judges to apply to, the resource for clerkships. That is our database. Okay, I, I love this, right? But this is coming from... <laughs> Someone who had, you know, a similar experience as a young lawyer, not in a clerkship capacity. And I definitely understand and appreciate the need for this. I'm curious what kind of resistance you're getting. <laughs> and, you, and you smile really big because I know it's happening, right? There's got to be some some resistance by um, by the judges. So what's going on? Let's take a quick pause for a message from my sponsor, Prominent Practice. Are you thinking about a career transition from big law or partnership to a solo practice, selling your practice, or maybe you're launching a project unrelated to law? Whatever the reason for your transition, you'll need support along the way. Enter Prominent Practice, an executive consulting and marketing firm specializing in branding, positioning, and reputation management for transitioning attorneys. Founded by a female entrepreneur who spent a decade building smart digital platforms for thought leaders before pivoting to focus on high-end service providers who were preparing for successions, mergers, and acquisition events in their businesses. 
If you're thinking about making a big business move, don't risk losing the ability to leverage the reputation you've spent your career building. Let Prominent Practice be your guide. Visit prominentpractice.com slash bliss for an exclusive introduction. It's actually not from the judges. I mean, I speak with a lot of judges who are very receptive. Um, I think there's a generational like mm. challenge. I mean, the younger judges sure. really get it. They are excited. Some of the older ones are more resistant. But no, I've received a lot of support from judges. Mm. Um, the resistance is from a couple of clerkship directors who say outrageous things to me. In addition to the not warning students, they say um, it's just it's not harassment. It's just law clerks adjusting to their first jobs. We don't need your project. We know about all the judges. Uh, we're blessed to only work with good judges in our circuit. All our students have positive experiences. Yes. <laughs> um, and then the worst one was recently someone said, you know, we don't want to undermine the good work that NALP and the ABA are doing on this issue. Well, I've spoken with NALP and the ABA and while they're wonderful organizations, neither is doing anything to assist with the mistreatment in the clerkship workplace. So these are all kind of like smokescreen nonsense statements um, from a handful of clerkship directors. And it's, you know, when I hear that, I just really feel sad for the students who are going to go another year without these resources. And we will be at all of those campuses in the fall talking about the scope of the problem, talking about our resources. And what we're already seeing is we're galvanizing student support. We speak to lots of student leaders who are excited to engage with us and want to go with us, to the administrations. And we're already seeing that. So yeah, I mean, the resistance has been from a small handful of folks, and there really seems to be a disconnect between deans of career services who are great and are very willing to engage with me, and then clerkship directors who sometimes, you know, really conform to the stereotype that their job is to funnel as many students into clerkships as possible. Good, bad, dangerous, career-ending, whatever. It's just about the numbers. And it makes, it makes me really sad because you know, I started writing and speaking about it when I'd only spoken with a couple and suspected there were patterns. 50 deans and clerkship directors worth of law schools later, I see strong patterns. Strong about patterns. This. Yes. yes. It sounds like you're going to have a really busy fall 2022 traveling to these different law schools. We are. We're going to between 20 and 30 law schools, and then we're doing some Zoom events in addition, and we'll be at more campuses in the spring. So yes, we're going to be busy, busy but I think it's important to be there in person and to talk about these issues. So, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the receptiveness of of most law schools. It sounds like there might there is a little bit of resistance from a very small handful. So, how what are your thoughts on approaching those going forward? You mean the resistant ones? Yeah. Yeah, so we will be circling back with them next year in conjunction with the student leaders who will have engaged with me, learned about these initiatives, um, heard me share my story, and we will be working with the student leaders who are already demanding these resources. I mean, I talk to a lot of student leaders and they get it immediately. They know that this is an unaddressed issue and they know that these resources would be enormously valuable. And I mean, they understand immediately that if a judge, if whatever law school you go to, no matter how highly ranked, no matter how robust and prestigious the clerkship program, the information your alumni can provide, there's a ceiling on that. And it is, where do we send clerks? Yeah. Law students understand that. And what I try to say to more recalcitrant clerkship directors and administrations is this. 
I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from clerking. I'm trying to encourage you to prioritize positive experience over prestige. And the two are not at all mutually exclusive. And then what I explain is there's a large segment of the law school population, historically marginalized groups, women, LGBTQ folks, non-white folks, who ultimately decide not to clerk because this is a unregulated, hostile, dangerous work environment. You could get that enormous swath of your law school population to clerk and really raise your clerkship numbers. You will not be like precluding folks from clerking. Perhaps there are a few judges we should, you know, dissuade everybody from clerking for. And I suspect our database will reflect that. But yeah, it's, it's about protecting the next generation of clerks. It's about ensuring their workplaces are safe. And it always troubles me when I hear crazy statements from administrators, clerkship directors. Um, yeah. And I, at some point, I think that law students, the thing is, I think that law students are already very aware that this is, there's, there's a disconnect between what clerkship directors are saying and what they actually need. And it's really about making public that disconnect. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your second initiative, um, the workplace culture assessment. So how does this tie into um, the first initiative, the centralized clerkship reporting database? Yes. So the clerkships database, we're going to have participating law schools send that survey link to the past 10 to 20 years worth of law clerk alumni. Who am I not? <laughs> yes. To the extent they maintain that info, there are some yeah. newer law schools that are very excited to work with us and we'll work with them on that. We just want to get as big of a data set as possible. Um, we're going to be doing the same thing with the workplace assessment, having law schools send it to the past 10 to 20 years worth of law clerk alumni. And this is a climate survey. It's going to finally answer the question, how pervasive is harassment in the judiciary? It's definitely modeled off of ideas put forth in the Judiciary Accountability Act, where they talk about a workplace assessment. The issue is the judiciary never has historically refused to do this. So we're just picking up the slack for them. And should they change course and decide to conduct one, I'm happy to compare data. But the issue is they're not going to report all the results publicly, especially if they make the judiciary look bad. We'll be reporting ours publicly. It'll be both state and federal. We're going to lose state data on the types of clerks facing mistreatment, the availability of resources in their courthouses, and their concerns about reporting to their law schools and to the judiciary, because there is an enormous disconnect between the number of law clerks facing mistreatment and the number that law schools you know, keep track of. Certainly a disconnect between that and the number that um, the judiciary keeps track of based on formal complaints filed. So yeah, that's our workplace assessment. Um, yeah, we have sent that out to law schools for their review and feedback. We're very excited about it. This type of data has never been collected before. And uh, yeah. Awesome. So one thing I'm curious about with you, and this is a little bit more on the personal level. Um, we had had, we corresponded a little bit on Twitter. You sent me a few different episodes that you've been on some other podcasts and um, you said that you kind of dodged a question um, about the investigation of what in one of those older podcasts, I think it might've been back in May. Um, you said yeah. I was feeling less empowered when we recorded than I am now. Yes. I am really just curious about like, here we are in August of 2022. Where do you think that shift has happened for you in, in the last few months? Kind of that empowerment shift. That's a great question. 
I think seeing the positive response to my story, my advocacy work, and the launch of the nonprofit. I mean, law clerks reach out to me every day to thank me for the work I'm doing, to share their stories, confide in me. And I think that's been enormously gratifying. Plus, it's been an enormously positive response from law schools overall, from judges, state and federal, um, from most people in the legal community, though there's deafening silence from a couple and that's unfortunate. Um, yeah, I think just the positive response to my story has been empowering. Um, you know, I don't, I initially wondered if it was, you know, softball coverage in the early days or people, you know, being nice to me, to my face, but saying things behind my back. But I, you know, I think it's just people, my story resonates. They think it's time for change. Uh, yeah. Okay. So what is next for you and, um, the legal accountability project? Um, so we are working right now to identify our law school partners and we hope there'll be at least 10 schools apart with us this year. And then we'll, like I said, be back circling back with all the recalcitrant administrations, um, after, back. <laughs> after we've been to their law schools. Yes. Good. Yes. Good. Um, so yeah, I mean, I hope that six months from now, we'll have more than 10 partners for the database, that we will have more schools coming on board, that we will have law clerks reporting into the database and law students being able to utilize it um, next spring as they are applying for clerkships. And I hope that we'll be collecting and reporting data for our workplace assessment. I mean, down the road, there are other initiatives we want to work on. I want to create an employment attorney database to connect mistreated law clerks with attorneys who can help. That's important to me because of my personal experience with my own attorneys who are very helpful and um, couldn't have done it without them. I certainly couldn't have gone through the investigation without them. Um, yeah, and then we'll just work on more initiatives. I'm just very excited for what's next. Uh, yeah. Yeah, one thing um, I saw that you had tweeted, you said, I didn't leave the law. I went to my calling. I stole that from somebody else who said it on a podcast. Okay. <laughs> So we're stealing it from that podcast, but I, I love that, right? Um, I really feel like there's so much energy and that you have so much passion about this project. Yeah. I mean, this is what gets me up in the morning. This is what yeah. keeps me up at night. This is, I mean, I, I did not think when I was a law student or a law clerk that I would spend like 24 hours a day, seven days a week talking about judges and clerkships. Oh. And yet here I am. And yeah, yeah, here you are. But think about like, so many people that you're going to help and it's unfortunate that you've had the the experience but you're obviously taking this you know the challenge that went that you went through and you are seeking to help other people your your experience definitely i don't want anyone else's clerkship reality to be my clerkship right. reality right. and i mean when i think back to the criticism i faced when i was a law clerk that i was aggressive and bossy i mean those are things that, you know, if, it, if I were a man, I would just be called assertive, but a leader. Yeah, being <laughs> a leader. Yeah. But law clerks need me to be that way right now. I mean, I wasn't going to change my personality for the former judge anyway, but sure. they need me to assert myself and just barge into a zoom with the Dean of career services and tell them what needs to be done. Send cold emails asking rich people for money. I mean, this is what needs to be done. <laughs> So, that, so speaking of that, let me ask you, what, what can we do? What can your audience do? The people that are listening, how can we help the legal accountability project? 
Yeah. So they can go to legalaccountabilityproject.org to donate to us, to sign up for more information. Um, they can reach out to me individually to learn more. Aliza Jotchatsman at legalaccountabilityproject.org. Um, down the road, we're going to be, as we announce our law school partners, we'll probably be also making clear who's refusing to partner with us. So at that point, we'll want some alumni to say, hey, these seem like resources my law school should be on board with. So we're excited to launch that initiative in the fall as well. The demand that your law school participate initiative. So yeah, I like that. Is there anything that you want to leave our audience with today? Yeah. I mean, I'll give a word of wisdom and then I will also leave the audience with something. I mean, in terms of wisdom, (laughs) assert yourself, go after what you want. If you see a need, if there is an issue that needs to be addressed, just go after it and tell people what you want, what you need and explain why. I mean, delineating like issues that need to be addressed and how to address them is enormously important. Just go after it. I mean, this is my passion and I'm glad that I quit my job to get this nonprofit up and running. And then the other thing I'd like to leave people with is that judicial misconduct is pervasive and persistent. And for every law clerk who speaks out, there are just so many in state and federal courthouses across the country who are suffering in silence, who will never speak out. I receive outreach via LinkedIn and Twitter and email every day from mistreated law clerks sharing their stories. And I think particularly for some of these clerkship directors and administrators who are on the fence about participating, I received disproportionate outreach from your alumni sharing their stories. That's fascinating. Yeah. This touches everybody, whether you clerked or not, whether you look back on your clerkship fondly or not, whether you're an attorney or not, it's time for just everybody to get engaged on these issues. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I am super excited for you and your project and hearing a story like this and learning from you, from someone who's so much younger than I am, I'm just so optimistic about our careers um, and where the field is going. And for the younger, the generation that's even younger than than you, I'm optimistic that they're going to have better experiences than we did. So thank you so much for not only sharing your story, Um, but also for the work that you're doing. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today on Legally Bliss Conversations. If you love this episode and you want to hang out with other inspiring and light gold female attorneys, be sure to join the Legally Bliss community at legallybliss.com. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at Susie Hickson. See you next time.